In the book of Esther, chapter number 3, verse number 1, it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded that concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Will you say Holocaust? That's exactly what we have here. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, they rolled dice, they cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from, every one of, uh, from, from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written, in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, say Holocaust. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly, by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down, can I paraphrase, to have a beer together. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. It reads very much like a historical account filled with data. And what I'm praying and have prayed this week is that the Holy Spirit will awaken us to several things, not the least of which is Satan's ongoing hatred of the people of God, the chosen people, the seed of Abraham, the Jews, and Israel. 
We live in a day where this exact same spirit that is seen in Esther chapter 3 is climaxing right now in our world, and you're going to see it come to an, a, an absolute bursting, a volcanic bursting, when the nations go against Israel towards the end of the age. This is not history. This is the perhaps one of the earliest ripples of Satan's fury against Abraham. And tonight, for those of you that may be new to your Bible, I'm going to tell you a little bit of why the devil hates Israel as we look at that being displayed through the life of this wicked man named Haman. So let's go back up into verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to give you something. This is not just about Israel tonight. It's also about your life and my life. And so let's start with this kingdom principle that is revealed in a wicked man. The wicked man is Haman and I want to show you something that we all need to file and remember because it can be in play in our life this is a kingdom principle that you do not want to have active in your life and let me tell you what it is first of all it's this component of it that we begin with note this that incomplete obedience incomplete obedience haunts us what am I talking about? It is found undergirding the beginning of verse number one. It says that after these things, that King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, and then it describes him as the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha that we know nothing about. It is that phrase, the Agagite. If we went back 500 years from this point, a little bit more than 500 years from this point in Esther's story, you'd find yourself at the time of King Saul in Israel, around 1 Samuel chapter number 15. And God had commanded Saul, the king, through um, uh, Samuel, the prophet, to exterminate all of the Amalekites, to kill them all. That was a directive from God. It wasn't, he wasn't looking for a move or a second or a, a congregational vote. It was God saying, Saul must destroy all of the Amalekites. But Saul, being the kind of guy that he was by that point in his life, thought, better, thought, thought that he knew better than God. And so do you remember what he did? He spared a king whose name was Agag. He is the king from whom this word, the Agagite, Haman uh, descended from. Now, Samuel took care of Agag, but Saul obviously let some of his descendants in other parts of the territory live. He did not thoroughly exterminate all of the Amalekites. He did not fully obey the word of the Lord. And because of that, five centuries later, you have two things. You've got a guy named a Mordecai who is actually, as we learned in early chapters, he's a descendant physically of King Saul, and you've got another guy named Haman who is a descendant of King Agag, the man that Saul let, uh, would have let go and did not exterminate all of his, um, his descendants. Why is this important? It's going to highlight a principle here, and this is the way I want to describe it to you. Incomplete obedience in our lives returns to haunt us or our descendants with consequences. When you and I, and it is within all of us, even the most committed believer in the room, there have been times, if you've walked with the Lord longer than six months, there have been times where you, you kind of negotiated within your heart about how obedient you wanted to be. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled over the years that don't want to fully repent of sin, they just want to manage it to where the consequences of it aren't as bad as they could be. And that's not what the Lord calls us to do. 
The Lord calls us to confess and forsake, and then we can move on. But a lot of times we don't want to operate in obedience. Or maybe it's not the issue of sin. Maybe it's God giving us a command, give us, giving us a calling, sending us in a direction. And we, we were very much like those that when Jesus called them, you had a guy saying, hey, I just got married. Let me go ahead and spend this year with my bride. Got another person that said, hey, look, I, I need to bury my parents first. And another one said, I just bought a field. Let me, let me work my field. And Jesus was not really in a negotiating mood with any of them. And, and basically it's this. He said, hey, when you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. And so incomplete obedience is something that King Saul engaged in five centuries earlier. And now one of his descendants, Mordecai, is in the same geographical area with one of King Agag's descendants, a man named Haman. Well, here's another part of this kingdom principle. Not only our incomplete obedience, but here's something that you and I need to go ahead and accept. We need to quit sucking our thumb and crying and whining over it and, and quit, you know, pouting until God explains himself to us. What am I talking about? Listen, go ahead and embrace this. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Verse number one at the end of it. Haman was advanced by the king. The king advanced him and set Haman's throne above all the officials who were with him. I'm going to give you something, and it's not going to sound overly shepherding and pastoral and compassionate, because I see this all the time, where people want to indict God because God does not act in ways that prevent all calamity and all wickedness and all evil and all selfishness and the aggression of people in power, and God doesn't just squash it automatically, and people stumble over that. And they think God's done something wrong. And, and literally, I've seen people put their lives on hold or, or cave in when something bad happens from a person in power when God could have, God could have stopped it. And, and people just, they, they go inward with it. And they can't, they can't reason within themselves, why does God do that, instead of just accepting the fact of this. This sounds cold, but I promise you, if you'll just go ahead and internalize this, it'll help you. God doesn't have to explain himself to me. I mean, I know that's not the soft kind of, you know, modern day answer, but it is biblical. God does not have to explain himself to me or to you. And there are some things that we don't get. There are some things that don't seem to jive when we sing good, good father. And yet good, good father has allowed some bad, bad things to go on. And we think, we think well, how can he be good if bad happens? Well, I'm going to tell you something. One nanosecond into glory, you'll have that question answered. And until then, you trust his character when you don't understand his ways. And so when what's happening here is Haman's getting elevated. He's getting elevated. And, and listen, the sovereign and silent and still God of the book of Esther, remember, he's not named one time in the entire book of Esther, but he's so active, but he's not using his activity to stop the bad guy. He's, he's allowing the villain to prosper. Friends, think of just the history of the world in, in the last century and a half. We see such terror and horror fill the world. It, it is just, it's impossible to deny. It's impossible to avoid. Even the ostrich with its head in the sand has to eventually extract it. And when it does, it's breathing in the atmosphere of a wicked world. And that is the cause, excuse me, the result of the curse. We live in a cursed world, and we do not yet see all things put under the feet of Jesus, but we will. But until that time comes, I promise you something. I promise you, you're going to continue to see evil 
in certain places, seemingly go unresisted, and seemingly, if you're too premature in your judgment, you're going to say, evil has won the day. And I'm going to tell you, never, ever, ever forget the back of the story, which we haven't stepped into yet. Never, ever forget the promise at the end of the age and what will happen to every form of evil and every unrepentant evildoer. And the king of righteousness is going to stand here on earth. And the Bible again says that every single knee is going to bow to him. Every single tongue is going to confess. And so we cannot get consumed with why a good God allows bad things. We have to accept it. And I'm going to tell you, the theological truth is all of it lends itself as the grand weaver, as his hand, works all things together for the good of them that know him, those that are love him, that are the called according to his purpose. So part of the maturing Christian's belief system is I don't have to understand it. I cannot put my life on pause in the face of, of paradoxical things going on, evil happening, you must plow through and recognize that there are some questions that will not be fully and satisfactorily answered until we get to the end of the age. Haman represents some in our day today where wicked people arise to positions of power. Go down into verse number two. Here's the other part of this kingdom principle. Humanity tends to worship humanity. Verse number two, all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had commanded concerning him. Now, as you read the story of Haman in the book of Esther, he comes off like a guy who just kind of is opportunistic because he is buddy-buddy with the king He's the king's right-hand man. He's the highest male governing official, apparently, uh, right beneath the king. And he seems to take advantage of the king's aloofness. The king doesn't seem real dialed in. The king likes women, and apparently he likes his liquor. And other than that, we don't really get a whole lot about a king Ahasuerus. But Haman likes power. Haman likes recognition. Haman likes the fact that people will honor him and bow down. And you're going to see that grow and grow as we get into the forthcoming chapters. But in this moment, the king, somehow Haman's gotten the king, or the king just decided on a whim. I think I, whenever Haman's walking through the city gates where all of the other big wigs of, of, of the king's court are, I want all of them to bow down to Haman. We have things like that that's in, in our culture today. If a, a certain individual walks in the room and you're sitting down, there are times where you just stand up and it's a sign of honor and respect. But with Haman, you're going to find out, it seemed to go a little bit more deeply. Haman wasn't just interested in the respect. Haman wanted, he wanted worship. He wanted a level of honor that was fit only for a god, which Haman will prove very soon he's no god. So that's the scene. King Saul, 500 years earlier, if he had foresight, would have recognized my disobedience today is going to affect my distant ancestor then. And what, what is amazing is because Haman was allowed to proceed from that line, here he is in five and a half centuries later, and he's about to call for the extermination of all of God's people in the Persian Empire. Now, before moving on to the next point, there is grace in our day. 
I want you to remember that. Some of you with really sensitive consciences could leave here tonight saying, choices I made in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, oh no, it has initiated a domino effect and there's nothing I can do. I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, Saul was not a repentant man towards the Lord. Saul never, ever turned to the Lord and, and just gave himself to the Lord in the sense of, Lord, I've become wicked. Please forgive me. Please take this curse off my descendants. He never did that. For those of you that are walking and following Jesus Christ, I want you to know, though there are oftentimes difficulties that proceed from our past sins, I want you to know that where our sin is abounded, there his grace much more abounds. And so we never have to leave with a fatalistic, um, you know, attitude of I'm doomed. All right, now let's go further down into this. The next thing I want to highlight here is what I call a steadfast loyalty. And it's displayed in a holy refusal. This is what I call kingdom civil disobedience. We're going to look at Mordecai now. And Mordecai is the guy that you need to be inspired by in this passage tonight. Mordecai is the guy that we really, really want to learn from and emulate. First of all, Mordecai possessed deep convictions. So remember, the king's edict was when Haman walks by, everybody bows down. And the scripture says, but Mordecai did not bow down. He did not bow down. He did not pay homage. Now, Let's get, let's get off of the print on paper and let's put ourselves, let's use our sanctified imagination and put yourself in that scene. So you're Mordecai, you've got a position at the city gate that was excuse me, established in the last chapter. And so you're, you're somehow you're in good with some of the king's people. Esther probably pulled a few strings, got Mordecai in there. And so remember, that's where he heard about the plot to assassinate the king. And he, he, he ratted those guys out and saved the king's life. And so he's in pretty tight. And when Haman comes by, all of those guys are supposed to literally get on their face and bow down before him. So let's say there's 40 guys in the city gate. Haman's walking by at 8 a.m. like he does every morning, and 39 guys hit the ground, and Mordecai's just standing there like this. I ain't going to do it. I'm not going to do it. He gets away with it. Haman doesn't say a word. The next day, same thing. The day after that, same thing. Pretty soon, we're going to find out that the other 39 guys, I'm just picking that number arbitrarily, they start recognizing, hey, how come you're not the only one? How come you are the only one that's not bowing down? Let me give you something here. Uh, Mordecai knew his identity as a covenant child. He knew who he was in the God of the Jews. He knew the Ten Commandments. He understood that the, the Ten Commandments, which one was in play here, probably portions of, of several of them, but he knew he couldn't bow, bow down to anything that might be perceived as him bowing down and idolizing something. Putting another God, a God of the age, a God of the culture before his God, there was something within him that said, I can't do it. It's very interesting to me. Talk about incomplete obedience. Um, Mordecai could have bowed his body down and just said, yeah, but I'm not bowing my heart. He could have gone with the system. He could have just made sure he didn't make any waves. Everybody looking wouldn't have known that in his heart he was still worshiping God, but he bowed down. But Mordecai couldn't even do that. Mordecai wanted to fully comply with what the, the Lord was dealing with his heart about. My, my son is in a school, and he's experienced some bullying this year. And twice in the last five days at school, he has been cursed out with F-bombs by two different boys. 
And I asked, I didn't get it, he told me right before service, and I said, let's talk about it on the way home. But he told me about the one the other day that a, a young man was, was using vile language in the locker room. And this is a, this is a Christian school. And this kid's probably not a Christian, but it's a Christian school. And Landon said, hey, you're, you're, in the, you're in a Christian school. You really don't need to use that kind of language. And the guy just went off, beep, 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 and went off on him. And so it, it hurts, man, when you're a 13-year-old kid and you're getting cursed out in the gym and everybody's looking at you or in the locker room. And Landon, I just, I just wanted to affirm him. I said, son, if you did it with the right spirit and you did it because you were standing on your convictions, Amen, hallelujah, be a guy who represents Jesus even if you're the only one. Sometimes you're going to be the only one. You're going to be the only one. And the reason you're in that spot is because God wants one in there. When everybody else, listen, the guy that led me to Christ was my supervisor and boss and we all mocked him. We, we made fun of him. We mocked him behind his back, occasionally to his face. He was the only Christian. He had the audacity to come and join our staff on night shift, and we were the drinkers. We were the partiers. We were the tokers. We were those guys that did whatever we wanted, and here comes this Christian, and we mocked him. By the time I left that department four years later, everybody was saved. Everybody got saved because there was one dude in there. It wasn't me that led them all to the Lord. It was one guy. And I'm thinking to myself, it would have been real easy for him just to be quiet and run to the church on Sunday and get his worship on and then just kind of hold his breath at work. But no, he went in there and he leavened the whole lump. He got in there in a very holy and positive way. That was Mordecai, man. His convictions would not allow him to bow down to the culture and what everybody else was commanded to do. Now, it's easy to celebrate that in the church house, but when you're the person in the culture there's going to be some consequences, so let's look at that. Mordecai even withstood, let me just get this real quick, he withstood the temptation to compromise. It wasn't a one-time event. Very quickly, in verse 3 and the end of verse 4, it says, the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And watch this, it says, and when they spoke to him day after day, when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. Now, let's walk through it. Put yourself in Mordecai's sandals for a moment. Every day, they're coming after him. Every day. Just bow down, Mordecai. Just bow down. Why are you making waves? Why are you breaking the laws of the land? Because it was a law. And so he's getting the internal, perhaps, pressure. Maybe there's a way where I can just go ahead and bow down and honor God still. But his convictions, his identity, those were the things that governed him. And so day after day, the pressure to bow down, the pressure to cave in, the pressure to be somebody you're not, the pressure just to assimilate, the pressure to start changing your convictions because you're feeling isolated and alone and in danger. What if it cost me my job? What if it cost me relationships? What if I come off looking like one of those Bible-thumping right-wing Christian conservatives that nobody wants to be around? And the temptation... And especially when you're getting it, it was multiple people on multiple days, and Mordecai's just standing strong. You know, I don't know if any of you are in a situation where the Lord might be testing you in that area, but I can promise you this, two things come from a test like that. You find out where you are with the Lord, because man, it, listen, in here, that's why I don't understand why people are so just kind of starchy in church sometimes. 
I'm thinking, this is like the easiest place just to go bananas in the presence of the Lord. Some of it's probably personality. I get that. I understand it. Not everybody's an extrovert. But the reality is, is that God places people into um, environments where it's going to be hard to be the Christian that you're called to be. Where, where it's going to be, it's going to come with a price. But listen, do you, do you ever get haunted by that statement that Jesus made? Remember what he said? He just kind of just threw it out there. It was like an atomic bomb of a statement, and I picture him saying it with, with an expressionless face. He said, yeah, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before man, I'll deny you. It's a pretty intense statement. What do we find there? Well, it's not to make us walk in paranoia, but it is, it's a mirror. It just says either I'm in or I'm not, and if I'm in, go all in. And I think that's what Mordecai's wrestling through here, and he's getting tested, he's getting hammered on it, and ultimately, looking down in verse number four and into verse number five, he, we see something here. He's, he's making this holy refusal not to do this thing, but his loyalty to God cost him something. And, and real faith will eventually cost you something. Um, he, they told Haman, and Haman, again, is the villain. He's the bad guy that they were all supposed to bow down to. They told on Mordecai. They, they ratted him out and, and in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, look at the result. He was filled with fury. Filled with fury. The, the words of Scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nothing's there accidentally. And in the Hebrew, you know what that statement means? He was filled with fury. That's exactly what was going on. Haman found out that a Jew, the descendant of the very people that had tried to exterminate his people, a Jew named Mordecai refused to bow down, and it touched something deep within the heart of Haman and he became filled with rage. I find it very interesting, by the way. It was Mordecai that kept telling Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Remember that? I think, and I'm only surmising, I, I give you full permission to disagree with me here. I think Mordecai, as he raised Esther, probably knew that Esther could not handle the persecution that would come from being outed as a Jew. But Mordecai knew he could handle it. So when the time came, Mordecai said, I can't bow down to him because I'm a, I'm a follower of Yahweh. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm in covenant with God, and we don't bow down to anybody. And there it was. And so the news is out. And what, what happens here is the fuse to a very explosive situation got lit in that moment. Uh, before moving on, let me just, just throw this out there. I, I want our kids, our grandkids, and most of you in here are old enough to be parents. I want our kids and our grandkids, when they look at our faith, to be able to be inspired to make a stand in their generation. Friends, we need to go ahead and embrace this. The world that our children, younger children, and grandchildren will grow up in is going to be excessively hostile to biblical Christianity. Excessively. 
there is coming a time on planet, planet Earth where people that verbally name the name of Jesus will be called to recant their faith or be crucified or beheaded. That is in the Bible. At the end of the age, that is what is happening. And so that kind of stuff isn't just going to appear overnight. There will be a slow building. It'll be birth pangs towards that. And what, we're, what I'm realizing is that the Christianity that I've observed come into the limelight in the last, well, I've been saved about 25 years, but even going before that, I, probably since the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and to where we are now, there has been a morphing of biblical Christianity to become comfortable Christianity. A Christianity that has lost its salt. A Christianity that really doesn't offer any light that makes people do this. It's more of a, a warm glow. It's a soft watt bulb. And, and, and some of those lights, by the way, are, are just neon lights. So Christianity has to be cool. It has to be, it has to be amped up. It has to be jamming. And it's not Christianity. And so the more they keep imbibing over generations this syrupy, sweet, pseudo-gospel, let me tell you what's not going to happen. When, when literally... When the forces of hell are unleashed, there is not going to be within that type of Christian the ability not to cave in and recant. We are not preparing anybody. I'm talking about we as the church in America. We're not preparing anybody to endure suffering because we, we are so absolutely convinced that it will never come to us. You, you know, they rolled the dice here later in this, in this message. They're rolling the dice. I think the church is rolling the dice. We're like, let's throw it out there. Let's, let's gamble. I hope I, hope I, I leave this world. Either, either I go to be with Jesus or he comes back and I never have to deal with this stuff, depending on where your eschatology is. Some people think that you're just going to get an escape before any of it hits. I'm going to tell you, there's a whole lot of Bible passages that are given and the application of which is to Christians that are going to endure this kind of suffering. Some Christians are not going to be out of here. And we don't know who they are. And I'm going to tell you this. If we're not preparing the next generation to stand, to stand, to be the salt and the light, then how in the world do we think that when the real heat comes... How in the world do we think that they're going to be able to endure unto the end? Haman, he was filled with rage, filled with fury, because there was one dude, a descendant of those same people that tried to rid the world of my people, Haman might have said. He says, yeah, we're going to take care of business. And that fury was not just human. Based on what comes next, I'll submit to you my belief that that fury was in part fueled by Haman's ego, but it was also fueled by a raging hatred in the heart of hell and that, that the demonic and the satanic activity through Haman is about to usher in what's about to come. So go there a little further with me. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Isn't this encouraging? This is encouraging, right? <laughs> Listen, it can't all be, that's what I just preached, it can't all be pats on the heads, pats on the back, you know, uh, you know, three verses and, you know, 20 minutes and a Hallmark card together. It just, that's not, that's not biblical Christianity. So here, here we go. Here, here's, this is real subtle, what I, the point right here. A deadly decree sourced in a satanic 
hatred. Amen. It's just real encouraging here, but this is really what I'm, I'm, this is the vibe of this whole thing. From evil men come evil plans. Look down in verse number six. So Haman disdained. He did not want to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to Haman, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the king. It's like, I think, 127 provinces. I think that's what it says back in chapter 1. And all of the Jews in all of the Persian Empire, which, by the way, would have included all of the Jews that had returned back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was still under the Persian control. It was still being overseen. And so all of the people that had, had, had gone back to the homeland, it was all of them, all of the people living in Susa, anywhere you could find a province where there were Jews, the edict was about to come forth that they all must die. Friends, that's more than just Haman carrying a, a bruised ego towards Mordecai. I want you to think with me, just in biblical history and even in recent history, there's always been um, periodic attempts to exterminate the Jews from planet Earth. Egypt. You go to Egypt. You, you, they're, they're enslaved. They're in bondage. Moses, the, the, the deliverer, is said to be born. And, and you just got to remember, they were, they were wanting the population of the, uh, the Jews in Egypt to decrease. And so anytime the baby boy was born to a Hebrew woman in Egypt, there came a time where they would kill that baby. It was infanticide. And then when, when Moses came to deliver and Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go and he chased them through the Red Sea, what were they doing? They weren't just going to get them to come back. They were going to kill them, all of them. Then you, you, you just, you, you got to flash forward and you come to the time of Jesus and you've got Herod slaughtering the male babies because their king was to be born. And so you've got these periodic attempts in history, biblical history, yes, but we don't we go back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s and a man named Adolf Hitler who rose to power in Germany who wanted to solve the question of the Jew. And so he came up with a final solution. And blatantly, patently, without any hesitation whatsoever, the plan of Nazism was to kill all of the Jews in Europe, all of them. And so what other people group, historically, for thousands of years, has drawn that kind of rage? And by the way, isn't it interesting, what other people group has survived, sustained, prospered, and multiplied other than the Jews? Why? Because they're covenant people with God. It might be good to be reminded right here as this is taking place in Persia. Do you know where Persia was situated, the heart of the Persian? Iran. Iran. Do you know who hates the Jews more than anybody to this very day? Same folk. The same people. So when we're talking about, oh no, you know, we've got this Arab and Israeli hostility and we've got this on this side and we've got this on this side and what about the poor refugees and all of that? Let me just go ahead and listen. I, at this point, I don't even care if I upset anybody with this. I'm going to tell you that God has pronounced a covenant 
with Israel that is not broken. I don't care who the Democrats or the Republicans or the Americans or the Russians or the Iranians or the Egyptians or the Saudis or anybody else is for. I'm going to tell you at the end of the age, it's abundantly clear who God protects and who God destroys. And when we're looking around in our day and we're, 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 we're seeing this increased hostility against Israel, mark it down. It's not boys behaving badly. It is a satanically fueled agenda to bring all of hell's wrath against the people group from whom Messiah came. All the way back in Haman's day, it was pulsing. It was going on. From evil men come evil plans. Now, look in verse number 8. Here's the clash between faith and culture that's kind of uh, put before us here. Then Haman says to King Ahasuerus, here's his little slimy political move with this king who doesn't pay enough attention to stuff. So Haman comes into the king and he says, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples and all of the providences of your kingdom. Now, king, their laws are different from the laws of every other people, and they don't keep your laws. So that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. The, the reality is, is there's, there's really not this overwhelming evidence that all of the Jews were rebelling against the laws of the land in the Persian Empire. This is Haman's opportunity to take what Mordecai did and amplify it and apply it to the entire Israeli people group, to all of the Jews, because he wants nothing more than to kill them all. So what does he do? He just kind of sucks up to the king and he's like hey king you don't want anybody besmirching your royal name why why don't you let me take take care of business on your behalf he says to the king it's it's not to your profit to tolerate them um i'll I'll add this before moving on Um, biblical christianity biblical christianity and the culture of the united states of america in the day in which you live will never be compatible Never be. We are to love people. I don't believe in this ridiculous approach to denouncing and judging and screaming and pointing fingers in people's face. I would never talk like this outside of a Christian context where I'm being very plain spoken. I'm being very aggressive because you are my brothers and my sisters. This is like a war room. And then we go out and you know how we we kill the corrupt culture? We do it with love and grace and truth. So we don't go out there and we don't picket funerals, we don't carry signs, and we don't say God hates this people group. And listen, that's not we're, we're not moral crusaders. We're people that are trying to raise the dead through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we do that fueled by love. So don't mistake my passion with you as my um, technique with unbelievers. That's not the way I operate. But the reality is we have to recognize that we're not to try to find common ground with the culture. We're not. The Apostle John taught that that we can't be friends with the world, that we can't. And if we are, we're not a friend of God. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean we can't be polite. It doesn't mean we can't be friendly. It doesn't mean we can't be gracious. But what it means is you can't seek to find a middle ground that suits the culture and suits the church. You can't. Because what happens is the culture's smart. They're, They're smart enough to recognize they're like, 
oh, okay, I see what the Christians are doing. They want us to feel at home, but you know what? That's probably not real Christianity, but why not? You know, it looks good on my resume to say that, to say that I attend the First Church of Lawrenceville. And, and so th- this, this entire movement of, of seeker-friendly, listen, it can mean a hundred different things. There's no one definition for seeker-friendly, but let me tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that we hide the gospel in order to make the supposed seeker comfortable. That's not, I got one person in the corner saying, yeah, I know this is not pleasant, but listen, I'm a reformer at heart. My calling is to reform the church and you can't reform the church with a Q-tip or a cotton ball or wispy little enigmatic subtle thoughts. Remember the old SNL in the 80s? Uh, What was it? Something Thoughts with Jack Handy. Do y'all remember that? Me and Niall watched TV in the 80s. Okay. Well, my point being is this. We have to come at this thing hard. And, and ladies and gentlemen, the idea that we can find common ground between the culture and the church and still be faithful to the Lord, that's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. We don't have to be obnoxious, but man, we do have to be distinct. And so we're seeing that The culture of the Persian Empire and the faith of the Jews could not enter into an agreement. Paul would say the same thing centuries later. He said, what fellowship can light have with darkness? You know, let's just remember who we are because I'm going to tell you something. The culture knows who it is. And they're, they're taking hostages and offering no apologies for being who they are. And the church is over here with her hands stuck in her pocket and just somebody ought to do something. Well, somebody who? Us. Us. And listen, the authority that lives within us is greater than the authority that governs the culture. The wisdom that is in us is will put down the wisdom, the pseudo-wisdom of the culture. The love that is in us will redefine love that is in the culture, but not if we're quiet, not if we're bashful, and not if we're compromised. So going a little bit further, I've only got a few minutes left. Let me give you this last point in verses 9 through 11, because this is intense. So here's the hatred and the indifference that fuels the fires. It's the indifference and the hatred. Haman says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. That's a big ask, and it just comes right out. Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. By the way, king, I'll take care of it. I'll pay the 10,000 talents of silver, which is an astronomical amount. I think I read somewhere it's like 27 tons of silver or something like that. Um, And I'll put it into the hands of those that have charge of the king's business, and they'll put it into the king's treasuries. So the king takes his signet ring from his hand and he gives it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Two things here. You've got the hatred of Haman. He's burning with the fury. He's got this plan. He he appeals to the king's desire for, for wealth and pleasure. And he tells the king... I'm going to fully fund this project and it's actually going to result in in you having a little bit of an abundance coming into the king's treasuries. Some might say, well, where's he going to get all that money? Well, he's about to kill all the Jews. He'll own all their property. He'll have all of their money. 
He can easily fund this thing. And so he's not making a hollow promise to the king. He can actually do this. And so the king hands him the corporate MasterCard. It's, it's a signet ring. It's the same thing. Wherever Haman goes, he's got the king's ring. And what that is, it bears a seal. And he has the king's authority. So it's like swiping the card. Whatever you need, you need, you need a, a hundred footmen to go into this village to kill the Jews. No problem. Pay him a weekend's wage. Here's the king's MasterCard. And so the king... While Haman is, is filled with fury, the other side of the equation is the indifference of the king. And those two things, man, are, are just rampant. And they bring so much destruction. The hatred of the church is in our culture. But it's not yet at the highest level. What is more uh, damaging right now in our culture is the dismissiveness against the church. That we are irrelevant. That, that our, our stuff is old school, that we, we don't have a relevant message, that Jesus stuff, that Abraham stuff, that Moses stuff, that miracle stuff, that tongue-talking stuff, that signs and wonders stuff, that go to church on Sunday stuff, and everything that the culture looks at, most people in the culture don't hate us, so don't walk around, you know, with your tail between your legs. That day's coming, by the way, but really where we're at right now in our culture is, is we're just irrelevant. We're a nuisance. We're, we're the kind of people that are just like, whatever. And by the way, you may not agree with me on this. It's probably because you've spent a lot of time in the Bible Belt. But travel to other places in the country and be the salt and light and just kind of shoot me an email and tell me how that goes for you. Because the culture is not enthusiastically behind us. So when that rage against the church and that indifference to the church meet, the rage eventually becomes the predominant force because the indifference, it moves from being indifferent to the church to being annoyed with the church to being insulted by the message of, of, of sin and grace and the gospel and it, it strikes at the heart of the self-help culture that we live in. I don't need a savior, I can save myself. So why are those Christians talking to me about my sin? Who are you to judge me? You're a sinner too. It's funny how people say they don't believe in sin always use that phrase. Like, you're a sinner too, I don't believe in sin, but you're a sinner too. The reality is, is that by the end of the age, just read the book of Revelation, it, it, is, it is rage at the end of the age. And it comes against the remnant. It comes against the elect of God. Six minutes, last point. A national law is decreed by an ignorant king. Verse 12, we see this principle. The laws of men challenge the ways of God. They always have, they always will. The king's scribes were summoned. This is the legislative branch of the king's uh, cabinet. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, so Haman's writing the laws. You got the angriest guy in the kingdom writing the laws on behalf of the king. And it was given to all of the officials, blah, 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 right there. Well, not blah, 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 that's not reverent. But it was to all the governors and over all the province, all the officials, to all the peoples. So in other words, what you read there is there was nothing left. No box was left unchecked. So every single effort was placed by Haman to make sure that every legal box was checked, every um, logistical box was checked, all for the purpose of the day that was coming where they could kill those Jews. That's the, that's the fire burning. I, I just want to give you this very quickly. Um, there's laws, I'll just stick to our culture. There's laws in our culture that I want you to know, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's righteous. 
there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. It's almost like once it's passed into the law, the church just says, okay, well, that's just, that's another, that's another territory we've lost, but it's, it's in the government's hands, and so we go mute. We go quiet. There's a lot of legalization of things in our land that run counter to God's righteous law, to God's ways. And friends, I understand, once it's law, it's the law of the land, but don't let it ever be the law in your heart. Don't, let's not lose our voice and our bearings and our, our compass to recognize. We get our instructions from a, a higher law, from a, a, a lofty king that inhabits eternity and sits on the circle of the earth. I mean, we, we literally answer to the king who is above every other king. And so let's make sure that our hearts and our minds align with the ways of God when it comes to the laws of the land. It doesn't mean we have a right to disobey them, but as of right now, we still have our ability to express our opinions. We still have the freedom to speak. We still have the ability. Listen, in the body of Christ, we're, some of us are supposed to be a mouth. That means we actually express the heart of God through our words, through our freedoms to articulate and express the heart of God. And I feel like that the church has, has lost that. Last, uh, next to last point. So this deadline emerges in verse 13. So letters are sent by the couriers to all of the province, provinces. And look, just look at the language. It, it could have just said to kill them, but it said destroy them and kill them and annihilate them. Not some of them, all of them. And just to make sure everybody understood, get the young ones Get the old ones. By the way, no mercy, no compassion. Make sure all the women are slaughtered. And if they've got kids with them, kill them all. That's not just a guy who's mad at Mordecai. That is the pulsing, diabolical, hellish heart of Satan being expressed through government and legislature. And, and it, it didn't end in Esther's day. So when we're seeing laws that are passed... God, let there be a spirit of wisdom and revelation on that. That sometimes, though, it's, it's men and women in suits, and they, and they look educated, and they're prim, and they're proper, and they've got high government positions, and, and, and they're writing, and they're, they're nice, they're signing into legislation. Just remember, underneath all of that finery, some of those laws are proceeding straight from the strategy room of hell, and the church is voting for it every four years. We've got to think biblically on this stuff. So the last verse, an atmosphere of helplessness threatens the Jews. They haven't read chapter number four and chapter five. So this is where they're living. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day, the day of death. And so the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa in the citadel. And then that last verse just kind of, I'm like, are you kidding me? The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Don't miss it. Up in verse number 12, it says the, the couriers went out with the letters in the first month of the year, but the, the day, one day, was 11 months later. So for 11 months, all of the Jews in the empire are looking at their eye calendar. They're looking at the calendar saying, we've got three months, we've got two months, we've got one month, we've got three weeks, two weeks, one week, 
seven days, six, five, four, three. They're, they're, they know for 11 months when the law of the land says all of them, their kids, their grandkids, their spouses must be slaughtered. You couldn't run and hide anywhere. They couldn't get on a plane. They couldn't get on a boat. It's throughout the entire Persian empire. And so part of Haman's agenda was not only to slaughter them, but to terrorize them for 11 months. Let them know it's coming and give them 11 months to stew on the date of their execution. 